Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Country policing is vastly different to city policing because you know everybody. You know everybody and you know the impact on them and the community as a whole. And it's tough when you're holding a friend's body in your hands. It's really, really tough. Roger Eichler is a former country copper who served in New South Wales Police from the 1990s. Like so many others, too many others, Roger eventually left the service on a medical discharge with debilitating PTSD. Roger Eichler's written a book about his experience as a country copper. It's called The Price of Protecting Others, and he joins us today to talk about it. The very first incident that I have recorded against my name for a PTSD incident was I was off duty, but I was doing my civil duties, as you do as a policeman in the 
country community and uh, I was off duty shopping with the family in Dubbo. We were living in Dubbo and I saw a, um, a regular client of ours <laughs> and he was a 15-year-old boy and he was stealing lollies and he shoved them down his shorts. I was off duty but I had my badge and I said, mate, you know who I am? I'm a cop. Yeah, 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 whatever, fuck off, da-da-da-da. So I arrested him and took him into the manager's office at the Woolworths store there like we did. Yeah, the normal process was to take him into the manager's office because you could secure the the customers in there. And he leant forward onto the manager's desk, grabbed a pair of scissors, turned around and tried stabbing me. That was the very first incident of recorded PTSD. But I probably had a few incidents before that. But And the culture back then, back in the old days, was to just drink all the time. You know, the, there was booze all the time available in the in the station. Really? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, but as a country cop, it's it's more, for me, in my experience of 17 years all up, um, it's it's very personal as a country cop and that's why I wrote this book, you know, because as a country cop, you know the people. You know them personally. You socialise with them, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's tough when you're holding a friend's body in your hands. It's really, really tough. And because of you're working in small country stations, your wife and your family are affected because they live right next door or the police station is built into your house and they see and hear a lot of the stuff. And while back in those days, while you're out on the on the road, like as the police officer, your wife is the one answering the door, answering the radio, answering the phone, seeing and feeling exactly the same stuff. So she ends up with vicarious trauma. Were you a one cop in a one cop town? I was in several small stations. Uh, Merry War was a three-man station, but I was the lock-up keeper or in Victoria you call them the um, the watch house keeper. They basically take all the after-hours calls. They look after the prisoners after hours and all that sort of stuff. And then I worked in a one-man station and the worst place was at Euston, which is in the far southwest of New South Wales near Mildura. It was a two-man station but so remote I was there 80% of the time by myself. And I just took a caning out there, absolutely took a caning. Being a two-man station on the Sturt Highway, which is the main highway that runs from Sydney to Adelaide, getting out of bed at six in the morning, you know, at six o'clock you're cuddling your wife, at ten past six you're feeling for the pulse on somebody on the side of the road. Blood, guts, trucks rolled over and the, and the truck driver's standing on his head and chokes himself to death and you're trying to get a body out of a truck, holding a man's face to his skull to help him breathe. And then the, the doctor shows up from the hospital and does a roadside tracheotomy, you know, and, and then you've got to go home and unpack all this shit. Pulling a Vietnam veteran out of a car that had been dead for five days and he's covered in maggots and the maggots are pouring out of the cavities of his face, you know, and, and you're wearing his bodily fluids and maggots while you're trying to pull him out of the car. And knowing that he was a Vietnam vet and troubled with all his PTSD stuff and he, had, he took an overdose on the medication that was ma- meant to make him better. I had a case where um, a fella that was Melbourne Cup Day 2001 and he uh, he was involved in a fight. As a result of that fight, he uh, he got uh, put onto his backside and he was hum- humiliated. Uh, he then jumped into his car and drove off, felt humiliated, as I said, and then turned around and drove his car through a shearing quarters, killed an innocent person, ploughed into a tree. He was a professional farmer and shooter. We were led to believe that he had his uh, kangaroo rifle with him, so a triple two or a two, two, three rifle, high powered, you know, with scope and all that sort of stuff. And then he ran off into a shearing shed 
and I had a dead body there and I had to try and track down the offender and I had to go into the shearing shed with an offsider, which took about an hour to get there because I was so remote and uh, had to go into the shearing shed waiting for my head to blow off and, and clear the shearing shed to see if he was in there, you know, hiding from us. I don't know if you've ever been to a shearing shed, but usually a shearing shed, the floor is made up of one inch wide timbers with a one inch wide gap so that all the feces and waste products from the sheep can just fall through underneath the building. So my mate and I, we walk through this whole building looking for him, calling out his name, all that sort of stuff. We walk out to the other side of the building and we can't see him. And then all of a sudden we hear from behind us, you walked right over the top of me, Rog. Uh, we turned around and here's old mate standing there with no rifle. He says, oh, I don't have a rifle, but you better check my left boot. And he had a boning knife in his boot. Knives and arrows can go through a bullet-resistant vest. So both my mate and I were waiting to be shot, and then all of a sudden we're waiting to be stabbed. He basically said, Roger got me. He was a nice guy. He just did something really, really dumb, really, really dumb, killed an innocent guy, and he paid the price. He ended up in jail for a few years, all that sort of stuff, but now he's got a lifetime of living with the fact that he killed a friend. And you've you know, taken us back to a point that you made earlier, which is that it's personal. He knew your name. He said... Absolutely yeah. personal. I knew him. I knew him quite yeah. well because we would talk, you know, at least once a week, once a fortnight, you know, he'd, he'd be out the front of the pub and we'd have a bit of a chat mm. and he'd drive home or whatever. I'd meet him on the farm. I knew him personally. God. I knew him personally. I knew him. I knew the victim. Oh, God, that's awful. And then I had to arrest him, put him into the back of my police truck, take him into the station, and he ended up in jail. Obviously, you would have to have done many uh, of these things that – are called terribly death knocks over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Where you have to go and, and inform a family that their loved one has been killed in various circumstances. Yep. So I, I had that incident, but only a couple of weeks before that, I had another incident where we had a, uh, a gentleman come knocking on the door. I was at work and um, he said, Roger, we're trying to find old mate. You know, it doesn't look too good. So we had to go and try and find old mate who was always thinking in in a dark world. He was you know, only a young fella in his mid to late 20s with a wife. His wife was my wife's uh, work partner. They had two small kids and we found old mate. He had hung himself out in the bush just past his um, vineyard. Uh, excuse me. And um, basically the only way I could get him out of the tree was to hold his body against my chest, reach up with my knife, cut the rope, lower him to the ground, and because there was a dead corpse now, the ants were starting to invade him. So while I'm waiting for assistance to come with a, a utility, you couldn't get an ambulance in there, I'm sweeping the ants off him. That was a couple of weeks before that matter with the, um, with the fellow with the gun. A couple of weeks after that, Christmas 2002, I get called to a scarecrow hanging behind the bowling club in Houston. The scarecrow ended up, ended up being a 19-year-old friend of mine who had hung himself. He was hanging from a tree and his parents were friends of ours. I had to cut him out of the tree, holding his body against mine, crying, and then I had to go and tell his parents that their son was dead. Can you please identify him for the coroner's brief, please? And this was all within an eight-week period and that, during 2002, and I knew them all. I knew them all personally. And the fact of the matter is, guys, I'm guessing you guys are in Melbourne, Earlier this week, we had two police officers kill themselves within three days. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is we put people into these positions of authority in these sort of organisations. They don't understand it. 
or they've been taught to suppress it so much because of the position that they're in that they just have no grasp of how to deal with it. It will never change until they do something serious about it. Well, what? I mean, because I know that they are, they have been trying very hard. It, I don't think anyone knows what to do. I think they're trying very hard. I, I was in front of the classes at the academy talking to the students and saying, guys, don't end up like me or, or a heap of my mates. When you go to any of these incidents, openly talk about it to either a partner at work or a partner at home or seek help through EAP or any of those things. Do something about it instead of bottling it up. Talk to people. Be open about it. If you don't feel well in the head and you just can't cope, speak to a specialist. Speak to somebody. The thing is, those of us that are suffering or those of us that are living with this every day, we need to be able to identify in ourselves that we have an issue. And it took me a long time. It took me a hell of a long time, but I've got this bloody wife of mine <laughs> and she goes, you're an idiot today. You're doing this, this and this. Oh, shit. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I am. I got it. And that's where I pick up a phone or email them a, whoever and go, I need to have a chat. Yeah, this is what Libby's saying. And I had Libby go into many of my sessions to spell out exactly what was going on because I'm just sitting there going, I don't know why I'm here. What were your physical symptoms? Because a lot of people we've spoken to, they talk about the physical manifestation of PTSD, which is before they realise, you know, there's the... um, the theory, I think there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's about how trauma plays out in your physical symptoms. Yep. Lots of headaches, taking heaps of headache tablets all the time, headaches constantly, um, sexual dysfunction, and that sexual dysfunction in me was nothing worked, but in other people, overstimulation, wanting to have sex constantly. And this is what happens in, in some of these workplaces is, I get you and you get me, how about we have sex? We start bonding with those people because we understand each other, but also other uh, physical symptoms was constant um, gut issues, constant stomach issues, gastric reflux, everything going straight through, constipation, anything to do with the stomach, craving fat, salt, sugar, carbohydrates, craving booze, Mm. eating sweetie crap all the time. Mm eating chippies, gorging on booze and, and crap food. You know, not every day, but when I had a session, I'd have a session. You know, it wouldn't be hard to knock over half a bottle of rum a night. And, and pills don't fix it. Pills are part of the puzzle. You've got to talk to people. You've got to go and meet other people that are in the same boat and talk about it. Go to, I went to a couple of things. One's called Trojans Trek, which is an organisation in South Australia and they take people away who are veterans into the Flinders Ranges, away from the noise of world, and we talk about ourselves and we talk about coping mechanisms and how to communicate with our loved ones. Fantastic organisation created by Vietnam veterans because their mates were suffering. Yeah, And, and also I went to Quest for Life, which is up in uh, the Southern Highlands in New South Wales, learning about mindfulness, meditation, all that sort of stuff because you've got to switch off. Uh, you've got to switch off. You've got to be able to just disconnect from everything and just get some peace in your life because what runs around in this in your head, it goes at a 1,000 miles an hour when you're having a bad day yeah. and nothing makes sense. So you lash out. And I was an absolute asshole to Libby, absolute asshole so many times. I gave her so many reasons to walk out that door. Can you remember 
one of those days when you thought this is what makes it worth it somewhere into that journey and I know they would have been further and further apart but those days where you just thought this is what got me into this job this is what got me back into it absolutely there was quite a few jobs and I write about a couple of them in my book where you know you you just you just pick up something on the highway or whatever it might have been and you just go yeah I've nailed this one yeah you know the the main drug highway between Sydney and Adelaide is the Sturt Highway you know, massive amounts of drugs and ho- and drug paraphernalia and all that sort of stuff going up and down that highway and you pull up a car, like one of the jobs that I write about, where have you been? Oh, just down to Adelaide for a weekend visiting a mate. Oh, you've driven from Sydney <laughs> all the way to Adelaide to visit a mate for two nights. Yeah, yeah, right. What's in the car? Nothing. Oh, what's in the bag? Nothing. <laughs> $378,000. Why have you got that in the car? Oh, because I'm borrowing money from a mate to build my house. Oh, (laughs) Oh, right, okay. (laughs) And literally when I had old mate in the police station at Bower Reynolds, literally within 10 minutes I get a phone call from some undercover operative in Sydney and he goes, oh, this is Jono from whatever drug unit. Oh, I see you've got Mr Smith in custody. Oh, yeah, how do you know? Oh, well, we've just got ways and means of knowing, but we've been following him all over New South Wales. He's a courier. He's been supplying heroin in Brisbane and Adelaide and all that sort of stuff. You'll have fun with him. Wow. In the end, that guy, he lost his $378,000 and got six months on top of his five years because he was involved in seven kilos of heroin in Parramatta 12 months before. But the guy, he, one of his mates from South Australia said, oh, I lent him the money. And I said, oh, did you? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I did. He said, would you be willing to make a statement? He says, yeah, for sure, for sure, because I gave him the cash. He owned a trucking company in the town outside of Adelaide. So we went to the local police station. I I worded the detectives up. I said, this is what I got. Old mate goes into the police station, provides a statement. I get all the paperwork, send it off to the tax office. I get a phone call from the tax office. The tax office goes, thanks for all this information. They go and knock on old mate's door down in this trucking company. They close his entire company down and seize all his assets because he hasn't done tax for so many years. (laughs) (laughs) So, but he was also the supplier of drugs out on the highways. So that makes it worth it. Yeah, you've just found this entire chain. You've broken up an entire Absolutely. Chain. And that's when you go, man, I love this job. Yes. Just one little vehicle stop for random breath testing turns into $378,000 cash, closing down a trucking company. And a drug ring. Mm. And a drug ring. Beautiful. Wow. One little old constable out in the middle of the New South Wales yeah. bush. Yeah. <laughs> and then the ATO always gets you in the end, doesn't it? Oh, the yeah, ATO, yeah. Absolutely. They get you. If you if you can't catch them one way, you can catch yeah. them another. As a mate of mine said to me the other day, what a hell of a way to earn a job, earn an income, you know. And it's not enough. I mean, it's not like coppers are paid, you know, a fortune to, to do this stuff that we need done. We, we don't pay police enough and we don't support the service enough for what we ask of it. No, no. And, and while you're sitting down having your morning wheat picks and cup of coffee, we're out pulling a body out of a car or out of a bloody whatever or other and all that sort of stuff and you just go, yeah, is it really worth it? The average person, the average civilian like, like a normal Joe Blow who goes to the office every day, they end up with about five PTSD incidents in their entire lifetime. The average cop in a 20-year career has between 500 and 800 incidents of PTSD. 
That's massive. That is massive. Hey, Michelle and Emily. My name is Osna, and last Tuesday I signed up for Australian True Crime Plus. I love you guys a lot, and I just can't wait for all of the extra episodes. Thank you, Osna. We're looking forward to the extra episodes too. Osna is talking about our extra fortnightly uploads on Australian True Crime Plus, and you can join us too by clicking the link in the show notes or visiting us at Apple Podcasts. We'll be starting a special series on forensics soon, featuring Australia's leading scientists talking about real cases. You don't want to miss that. And we also talk back to you if you leave us a voice message like Osna has through another link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. It's next level. It's Australian True Crime Plus. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I was an extremely proactive police officer. You know, I, I loved catching crooks and outsmarting them and all that sort of stuff. And I, I had a couple of operations running where I was targeting the drug dealers in Cooma. Uh, and there was a number of houses around town. And the system is, is that I had a three or four cases going and I would just create all these information reports about everybody that I saw near the place, going to and from, all that sort Can of I stuff. Can I ask what the drug was? I know that around that area, Jindabyne and that, I would imagine marijuana would be big. It's a big national Marijuana, park. speed. Okay, speed yep. as well. Yeah, okay. And all that sort yep. of stuff, yep. Yeah, tablets. Okay. You, you name it, it was okay. there. Because Kuma's got a jail there as well, yeah. so any town with a jail has jail people living in the town. Simple as that. So I was targeting a number of people, and and that dot that night of the incident, I was my mate and I we were having a, a paperwork night basically. We were sitting down and just banging away at all our paperwork just to get it out of the way. About ten o'clock, I said, "Mate, I've got to get away from this computer. Let's go for a drive." He says, "Mate, I'll, I'll stay. You go for a drive. Clear your head. Come back." get back into the paperwork. Cool. Yep, sure. Being a Tuesday night, town was dead, but we could hear some explosions around town. And normally what happens in Cooma, because you're so close to Canberra, people buy fireworks and they're blowing up letterboxes in town. So we just thought, look, until somebody calls us, we're not going to go out and look for anybody who's blowing up letterboxes and then we'll just wait and see. But we could hear bang, bang, bang. All right. So at 10 o'clock, I jump into the police car, go for a bit of a drive, go past a few of my target premises, no activity. I'm driving down this one particular road and in the shadows, I could see two shadows, two people near one of the drug houses. They turned around, they saw me, they took off. What should a policeman do? Uh, 
chase them, I guess. And that's what I did. I took chase in the police car. They ran across a paddock and I'm driving through the paddock at whatever speed it was. I don't know. It wasn't, I wasn't doing a thousand miles an hour. One fella takes off, couldn't see him for dust. I almost hit an embankment and I jump out of the police car to chase the other person and I find that person under my police car. Oh, Jesus. And it ended up being a 15-year-old boy. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea who they were, but they were near a drug house. They were running away from the police near a drug house. I called for assistance, all that sort of stuff. Um, I backed the police car off him. Everybody arrives, blah, blah, blah. Scientific police arrive from, um, from Queen Bian. I was told that he was dead. Oh, my God. And then they said about 20 minutes later, Roger, we got it wrong. He's going to survive and he's in a chopper flying off to Canberra. He was back at school within about six or eight weeks. I was never allowed to hold his hand, hug him, apologise to him, nothing. He was seriously injured. He had, you know, broken ribs, punctured lung and all of that stuff and he was on life support but he, he did recover. He did recover. He certainly did recover. Um, lo and behold, several weeks later I'm told, mate, you're going to end up with some charges because this is what the police have to do to make sure it's a transparent investigation. So I'm charged with two charges. One is a criminal offence and one is a traffic offence. During that period, over the next nine or ten months, whatever it was, my mental health just spirals and spirals down and down and down. I'm lucky to get two hours sleep a night. My side of the bed is orange with sweat every night. I just can't sleep. I'm having all sorts of issues. The whole thing goes through the process of all the paperwork going to my solicitor and barrister and all that sort of stuff. I, I have these two charges and then they leave it up to me, somebody with four reports from medical practitioners saying Roger is sick, really, really sick, and they leave it up to me to make the decision whether I'm going to plead guilty or not guilty, and I can't. How can I make a decision about pleading guilty or not guilty when I was so sick that I wanted to die? What about the police union? The union gave me support in assisting with funding my legal team, but they gave me no other support to guide me or suggest how I should do this because they didn't want to interfere in my due process. And oh, okay. Hats off to them. That's great. Had you been diagnosed with PTSD at this stage or was this the catalyst for the diagnosis? This was part of the catalyst. And I, I, I was already seeing these practitioners. Yeah, I, had, I was seeing four practitioners at the time, literally just to keep myself alive. So Libby was driving me to Canberra in Sydney and all that sort of stuff to see all these different practitioners, literally just to keep me alive. So the court, my court matter was put down for a two-day hearing if I pleaded not guilty. And there was no chance that I was going to have myself sit in front of a magistrate and be torn apart by some clever yeah. fellow from the DPP because I was absolutely terrified that I would say something and, and, and sink myself and I was going to kill myself anyway. <sighs> so I pleaded guilty to the lesser charge in the hope that the magistrate would see that I've got a clean record and I'm an upstanding citizen and I had references from all sorts of different people. I was highly decorated, all that sort of stuff. So the lesser charge was uh, was reckless driving or? Yeah, basically yeah. drive in a manner to cause injury or something or rather. Mm. Yeah, it was a lesser charge, but 
worst case scenario, I still could have gone to jail. Yeah. But either way, whether I pleaded guilty or not guilty, I had made up in my mind that I was going to kill myself oh, anyway. Oh, no, Roger. Yeah, right. So basically I, I went to court. The matter uh, went before the magistrate and the magistrate basically said, Roger, I have no idea why you pleaded guilty. There was no reason for you to plead guilty. And the matter was dismissed. You said it was a terrible accident. And we went home. I was, that was like I was hit by a thousand trucks. I had no energy to even stand up in front of the magistrate while he did his summing up. I just sat there waiting for, to be led away into jail. Um, and the next morning I got a phone call from my commander and he says, I've just signed your papers. Thanks for your time, Roger. Goodbye. And I was medically discharged because he had the copies of the reports from the medical practitioners. He said, I've got enough evidence here to uh, have you medically discharged. There was no time to process. There was no time to sort myself out. There was no opportunity to get a desk job somewhere, pushing papers, doing the rosters, nothing. The day after I walked out of court, he basically sacked me. So what is the most traumatic part of all of that? Like even though you were vindicated, the judge said, Roger, I don't even know why you're trying to plead guilty. This was an accident and you walked out of there. So, you know, none of the worst case scenario eventuated for you. Why is it that it's still, that you still say the incident in Cooma, ever since the incident in Cooma, it's still the thing that haunts you? I serve the community to protect the community. And that's why the book is called The Price of Protecting Others. It, I paid a price. I paid a massive price that I, I should have protected him. I shouldn't have hurt him. And I nearly killed him. And I, I just want to apologise to him and, and say I'm sorry. But it, it was a tragic accident and I agree it was a tragic accident. I didn't intentionally go out to hurt him, but I hurt him. I hurt the family. I don't care about my reputation or anything like that, but I, I've hurt him. And my entire family paid a price on it. My wife, our three kids, all that sort of stuff, we've all paid a price because quite literally Libby and the kids were waiting for me to be dead, quite literally. And I've worked through a lot of it with my uh, counsellors and stuff. But, um, yeah, the, the impact and, oh, yeah, the impact has been enormous on myself yeah. and my family. Clearly. Massive, yeah. absolutely massive. Well, we had to leave Cooma because of it. And, and, and our eldest son, he, our eldest child, he said, you know, basically we either leave Cooma or I'm leaving home. How, how could we stay in a community that size? And, and the kid was at his school. I mean, it's hard enough being the copper's kid, isn't it, without something like that happening? Yeah. yeah. I mean, all, all three of our kids had issues at school because their father was a copper. Mm. All three of them. And, yes, I loved the job and all that sort of stuff, but when you find out that the, the three things that you love dearly are being bullied and harassed because, you know, their dad's a cop, mm. it hurts. Yeah, of course. In the absence of being able to talk to the boy, the boy's family, because it sounded to me when you were talking that the distress was mainly coming from the accident and what happened and then there's the process which was really drawn out. What What's helped you in the absence of being able to apologise or talk to them with you kind of working through it as much as you can? Talking. Yeah. Talking to anybody, putting it on paper, going to, you know, these um, retreats that I've been to and just talking to other people 
it's funny when you mix with other ex-cops and all that sort of stuff, you don't have to say much, but you just get each other. You just go, oh, what about something? Oh, yeah. What about that? Yeah, oh, yeah. You don't have to explain anything. And the hardest thing when you go to see a doctor or a psychologist or psychiatrist or counsel or whatever other, you have to explain everything. You have to break it down and say A, B, C, D. But not when you're in a group where you're all been through the same thing. And, and I've mixed with guys from Victoria and South Australia and everything. Yeah, different uniform, same job, same job. And I've got friends from the Singapore police, you know, and we just go, yeah, you're in a different country, <laughs> same stuff. And I've got friends from Germany, you know, cops, and you just go, yeah, just a funny language, you know, stuff like <laughs> that. You know, we all do the same crappy, shitty job. But when you're talking about it to other people, you can offload. And and when you're with like-minded people, you can offload in a different way than when you're speaking to a professional or to your partner. And that's when you can have some moments. Like when I went on this Trojans trek on the last camp with all ex-cops, basically, most of them, and we had moments where we were talking about stuff that we have never said to anybody before, some really highly personal stuff. And you're just offloading this shit and you're crying in each other's arms and stuff like that. And, and that's healing. That is healing. And that's why I love going away on these sort of things and mixing with other people because you can just offload and get rid of some of that poison. As you said to us earlier, it's not like you've been able to just move into another career or even another job. I mean, you've had so many jobs since then because you've been unable to stay in one place, let alone one job. Absolutely. And I, and I, when I moved to Bungendore, I was in a local government compliance role and I loved the job, but it was going through a bit of trauma. So I became hypersensitive and hypervigilant and all that sort of stuff. And it just upset me too much and I didn't feel safe. So I moved on. Can you talk to us about how that presents itself in the workplace, please? Oh, you, because of my career with the police, I didn't trust management at all in the end. The intimidation, the bullying, the harassment and all that sort of stuff. And you're constantly looking over your shoulder. So now that I'm in other workforces or have been, I just don't trust management at all. So what are you like around the office? Let's say you work for us and we all we all rock up at nine or let's be honest, half past or ten. <laughs> um, what what are you like around the office? We, initially, you know, dramas, but then what starts yeah, to happen? Initially with, with co-workers, yep. fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Love it and all that sort of stuff. But I'm always on the lookout for emails that are coming in. Yeah, I'm really hypersensitive about emails and phone calls and all that sort of stuff from anybody above my level because what are they going to criticise me about now? What's going to happen now? As a result of that stress and trauma, I have a slip of the tongue or I might become extremely anxious and I rush through jobs and I don't go from A, B, C, D and E, I go from A to E and I miss all those little steps in between. So let's say you've cocked up a job a bit because you haven't been methodical and it's not quite right and let's say then I send you an email saying, Roger, uh, that thing I asked you to do yesterday, it's it's not working out because you forgot to do D and F. Absolutely. And then how do you feel about that email? And then I feel intimidated and bullied and harassed mm. and then I start having all these you know, weird thoughts that, that you're going to start monitoring my phone and emails and all that sort of stuff and, and this is just all the Gosh. weird stuff that goes on in the back of my head because of all the trauma that I had when I was in the cops because that's what they were doing. Or that's what I was thinking, you know. So, and that's what happens in my job today. 
yeah, that I, I still struggle because I, I just struggle to trust anybody in a position of authority because those people were the ones that nearly sacked me quite a few times and in the end did. Yeah, I, I just couldn't trust them, could not. Be, and I would even go to them with personal matters and then they would use that as a weapon against me or I felt they did. The challenge of disclosing mental I health see, in Yeah, the I couldn't agree more yeah. about that, oh, by the way. It is yeah. tough. Yeah. Yeah. It totally. is really, really tough because even with the job that I had out at Young, mm. I declared it and then within the first couple of days I said, how do we deal with this, Rog? We've never had to deal with this sort of stuff. You know, like what do we need to do? And I explained it to them. And they were quite good. They were quite good. However, in other jobs where they just don't understand mental health stuff, they just go, oh, you're too much of a risk, goodbye. It's getting there. It's getting there. Like, yeah, a couple of years ago, trying to disclose your mental health and everything, you, I wouldn't get a shoe in. But it's getting there where they're quite open about it. Yeah, it's and changing. You, you tick a box. Oh, that's so good to hear. That's unreal. And the book launch that we held was a fundraising effort for Rotary Mental Health and we raised 1500 bucks in one afternoon. Well done. Good on that's you. awesome. So that, that's pretty good because I'm, I'm a Rotarian and all that sort of stuff. And that's another thing that I do. I still serve to protect but I'm doing it in a voluntary role with Rotary and we go out and we do some wonderful things for community projects. So if you're an ex-cop or veteran from something and you still want to you know, serve, yeah. there's all these voluntary organisations out there. So, um, yeah. And lo and behold, that that young fella that I, you know, that we thought was a scarecrow, yeah. their parents came to the book launch. No. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. They came to the book launch. I, I got in touch with them and I said, do you mind if I write about it? And they said, you got to do what you got to do, Roger. So yeah. what was it, 20 years later nearly, they came to the book launch oh. and I gave them a book and they read the book and they love it and, that, you know, I treated it with the, the dignity and respect that it deserved. And it was such an, an amazing experience to hug them both. Oh, but that's also a mark of the relationship you'd built with them before that night. Mm. Congratulations and give our love to your lovely wife, yeah, please. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. She's a fantastic woman and she wrote the final chapter about the impact on her and the kids and she says that she had to come to the conclusion that it was going to be my decision if I took my life and she had to understand that I made that decision myself. So um, Wow. Yeah, yeah. When you get the book, read the final chapter first and you'll go, holy damn, because I still cry every time I read it. Thank you to our guest, Roger Eichler, whose book, The Price of Protecting Others, is available online. And we have five copies to give away. Just leave us a voicemail using the link in the show notes or on the Facebook page and you could be a winner. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio, hubaustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.